You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Hello again, this is Annie Rose Malamet, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm joined today by Justine Perez-Smith, and we are talking about... I was really inspired by a lecture I saw Justine give uh, virtually through the Miskatonic Institute of Horror. If you don't know who they are, uh, check them out. Started by... Uh, Kayla Janice, who wrote House of Psychotic Women, uh, and I've taken so many amazing virtual classes through them uh, throughout the pandemic, and I think they're in person again now, too. So uh, Justine's class was on devotion, religious devotion, and body horror, and Justine talked about um, a number of films that fit within that uh, framework, but I was really most interested in your discussion on the films of New French Extremity. So I reached out to you, and today we're going to talk about your thesis for that class as it relates to this group of films that we're talking about. But before we get into it, Justine, could you introduce yourself to the listeners and say a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, of course. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this discussion. I am a film critic. I am the screen editor of Cult of Montreal, which is a, all, it used to be like an alt weekly, but now is kind of like an alt monthly with an online component in Montreal, Quebec. I do freelance work for sites like Hyperallergic, Roger Ebert. And I'm also a film programmer, so I program at the Fantasia International Film Festival, the underground section, and also at a cinema here in Montreal called Cinema Moderne. I'm on their programming team. So we have like a really cute little theater with like 58 seats and we screen movies we love. Amazing. I love Montreal. It's like one of my favorite cities I've ever been to. So I would love to come and visit and go to your theater and watch movies. Um, What do you love? First of all, I always like to kind of start what 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 do people love about this topic? Like, what do you love about new French extremity as a genre? I think I love what's in the title, the extremity of it, the extremeness. I I love all kinds of movies. I am a huge romance nerd, but deep down, I really, really love films that shock me or kind of push things to the edges of acceptability. And I'm not sure that there's been a movement that's fully captured that in quite the quite the way that the new French extremity has, particularly since I'm very fascinated by sex and cinema too and it's kind of bridging both of those gaps it's not just violence a lot of it is just has to do with bodies in general and how much of a human body has to exist to be considered a body to be a human body 
and there's this always this like spiritual undertone as well that even in the darkest of them maybe because they're french that it kind of always exists uh i'm i'm honestly just a huge fan in general even though some of the movies i like a lot less i i love the ethos of the whole thing yeah i and you know it makes sense that you're like a romance nerd because these movies are also really romantic <laughs> that's true yeah, in my opinion, um, especially uh, Trouble Every Day and Martyrs, which are two films we're going to talk about. How would you define the new French extremity movement? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but it's not something that I have. I've talked a, a lot about it on the podcast, but I don't have an episode about any of the films. So I kind of wanted to just give like a brief summary the two of us to people listening like what is new french extremity i mean i would say that you could, could define it through two ways because it's a movement i think it's very time oriented so it emerges maybe in the mid 90s maybe a little bit before and kind of ends like around 2010 and is really this period that was not organized that was not this kind of um these filmmakers that got together and like, we're going to create the new French extremity. But I do think it's a kind of reaction to the world. And it's an exploration really of a little bit of what I, I talked about a little bit about the bodies and the extremeness. But I think it's, it's not a horror genre, which is kind of weird because they're very horrific films. I think it's rooted in an art house tradition that maybe you can trace back to filmmakers like Pasolini or Fulci or Argento. Although at least two of those would be more genre filmmakers. And I think they're looking at the world and all of the violence and the wars. I think that the internet as well is kind of impacting the way that people see identity and see the value in human life. And also kind of facing the fact that, which is a very French thing, God is dead. And you have to make sense of the cruelty of everyday existence. So you have filmmakers like, we have the ones we're talking about today, but there's people like Gaspar Noé who are heavily associated with it as well. And it's really about the brutality of the world. And I think in a lot of cases, kind of going back to the romance thing, there is a strange optimism to some of these movies. And a lot of it is rooted in love and the only kind of reprise we have from the horror of being alive is the fact that we are capable of love. And that's beautiful. I like that. Yeah, there is like, it's pretty easy to see these films as nihilistic, but there is like a very hopeful core at the center of them that we'll talk about. And I think really relates to this idea of religious devotion. Um, the main text that I'm using is the Alexandra West book, New French Extremity. And she talks about the Georges Franju film, Eyes Without a Face, as a precursor to the New French Extremity movement. The name New French Extremity actually came from, and forgive me, I forget the name of the critic, but it was a critic who was um, disparaging the films. And <laughs> these filmmakers sort of, you know, reclaimed this idea of like, oh, yeah, okay, this is the new French extremity movement. And yeah, it's very like time period contingent, like er early millennium, um, 
I believe the first film that Alexandra West talks about in her book is Carne, the Gaspar Noe film, which comes out in 2000. And it's, you know, I can remember even like when these films were coming out and just how shocking it was at the time. Um, And it's just this group of films that, you know, according to West, really draws heavily on Antonin Artaud's concept of the theater of cruelty, uh, which he published in 1938, the essay, the theater and it's uh, in in his book, the theater and it's double. And the essays called for a revolution in theater and to do away with notions of expression um, and challenge the audience's expectations of what they, you know, hoped they would see. And Artaud defined cruelty as showing an audience unfiltered reality, not just confirming their own moral beliefs. And he believed that theater should be about the journey that the characters undertake rather than the moral outcome, which was very, you know, sounds like kind of duh right now, but very um, transgressive at the time. And I think even transgressive now, I think a lot of people really want their media to have like a moral message at the end of it. And that is kind of against this idea of the theater of cruelty. Uh, During the period, what Artaud was responding to was theater usually offered depictions of morality, confirming what the audience believed to be morally good was good and what was bad was very bad. And plays would offer a resolute moral ending in which bad characters were punished and good characters were rewarded. So Artaud believed that the theater of cruelty could be achieved by new acting and directing practices that would be based more on movement and sound to shock the audience. He believed this would force them to pay attention, triggering their subconscious and primal reactions, and thereby eliciting a quote-unquote true reaction to the work, which is really the basis of these new French extremity films. Uh, The first one that I wanted to talk about in relation to your work, Justine, is Trouble Every Day, the 2001 film directed by Claire Denis, which caused audiences to walk out and boo the film when it premiered. (laughs) So immediately right off the bat, um, because Claire Denis was a a very respected... um, drama art house director so there was kind of this outrage that she had made this horror film about this uh this dr leo this new this neuroscientist who's left his practice to become a general practitioner so he can monitor his wife corey who when sexually aroused becomes filled with a murderous cannibalistic desire um and then there's an also another plot running next to it about a couple, um, June and uh, Shane, who and Shane is suffering from this malady as well. So this was known as a film modite, aka a cursed film. Um, and yeah, I wanted to just sort of get into this. Do you have any initial thoughts that you're thinking about trouble every day as it relates to religious devotion? 
I mean, to me, this film relates to religious devotion, like specifically in the sense of um, religion as kind of sacrifice, uh, which you, in terms of sexuality, is actually like deeply ingrained, particularly within Western religions, Catholicism, Christianity, um, where you literally become celibate because just desire in itself is is a kind of violence and the betrayal of god there's the original sin there's all these elements but i would also say kind of talking about the romance and this idea of love as kind of this bomb is there's there's actually so much care and so much tenderness in this film uh between between these two couples particularly i would say um the doctor and his wife the the first doctor Sorry, I'm terrible with names. So no, yeah. I am too. I just have it written down. That's the only reason I was because I had it written down. And like the way that he, he he leaves his practice, the way that which could you could read as like, oh, he's trying to hide away, and but I I, I would say it's more as a way of protecting her and caring for her, and even the way she, he cleans her. Like I find that such a like a very strong religious motif that you see in a lot of imagery and is like in the Bible as well, cleaning of the feet, cleaning of each other's bodies. There's something so ritualistic in it. And I think that at the heart of a lot of ritual, whether it is religious or just traditional or just rituals between you and a loved one is rooted in love. And I think that comes across very strongly. I actually think that's why the film is so shocking because if you rewatch it, in my initial memory of it, it's so much more violent than my initial impression. There's a lot of violence here, and it, it can be quite shocking, particularly uh, one scene later on uh, with the eating. I always think of the eating of the lip as, like, to me, the most shocking image in the film. It, it's actually not that bloody overall. It's, it's quite tame. But I think because it's so contrasted, with so much love and so much tenderness and so many tropes of the romance, particularly the honeymoon sequences, like them posing uh, at tourist sites, uh, Vincent Gallo and his his wife, that it just, it, it ends up shocking so much more. Yeah, and it's non-linear, right? Which people also find pretty hard to digest. Um, and I think this idea, like this, the nonlinearity of it lends itself really well to religious devotion. And also, I think when we're talking about religious devotion, it's important to clarify that a lot of what we're talking about here, because these are French films, is Catholicism. Um, and like, I know as a Jewish person, like I grew up with a very different idea of religious devotion so specifically the like french catholic background um could you say a little bit more about how that relates to the devotion going on here like what is what makes this like essentially very catholic i mean there's a lot of heaviness in that the french relationship with religion and catholicism is insane on many yeah. levels um and I, I live in quebec which we have a lot of our own issues uh that are similar but maybe on a, a later timeline but it's like you almost have to go back it's like catholicism is like deeply ingrained into the culture however it is also an incredibly secular culture to the point of using what they call laicite which is secularism to 
Scottish non-Catholics. And like, it's, it's very clearly racist and xenophobic. Um, so I, I think that that's important to underline that the French relationship with Catholicism is cultural and that culturalism is very loaded. It is not just having some crosses on the wall or having some cathedrals that are still around. It's deeply ingrained in this idea of Catholicism as a very, a very supremacist religion, even mm -hmm. as they're like, God does not exist. Uh, and kind of building into that Catholicism, which is also why it's in conflict often, particularly in the United States, with other forms of Christianity, tends to be very ritualistic, very focused on the sensual, uh, which a lot of other Christians do not like. The mm -hmm. idea of the blood, the idea of the body. Uh, there's, they're often this very, very um, adoring uh, from the Catholic point of view relationship with the Virgin Mary, which other Christians call Catholicism often the cult of Mary, where they privilege her so much within that narrative. And you can see that even here with this idea of particularly Vincent Gallo's wife as almost this Madonna-like angelic character who is a kind of virginal type of character that needs to be preserved in a way that I would say that the Beatrice Dad character is not. Where it's it, very virgin it, horror. And he, if he desires her, it's as if his desire it, itself is a violence against her. And unintentionally when he is unable to kind of consummate the relationship he's also creating violence it's just this kind of like this endless cycle of male desire whether it's acted upon or not it like damaging this perfect almost she's almost childlike in this movie i would say like very angelic figure and i would say that's very rooted in the kind of worship of the virgin mary in catholicism for example yeah, absolutely. And then I'm thinking about like the virgin horror dichotomy at play with the Beatrice Dahl character who is positioned as more like the Vincent Gallo character, but with the agency stripped away. <laughs> um, and she's uh, not, would you say that she's like struggling with her desires or is she more just like feral and in it and is sort of being like captured or and tamed? Whereas Vincent Gallo is kind of just allowed to wreak havoc as a man with this malady. I think there's some ambiguity. I think she does want her husband to kill her. Mm -hmm. And you can read that as shame, that she's ashamed of her condition. But it could also be like a caged animal that it's not about being shamed. It's about not being able to fulfill her destiny or all of these other things. I think that Claire Denis keeps it actually quite ambiguous, the reason for that demand. Uh, and even if it is shame, it's unclear if the shame is because she eats people and tears them apart. Or is it the shame that she causes him by asking him to care for her? And then that burden. So I, I think that there's a lot of ways of reading that particular moment. I do think that there's, there's clearly this incredible dichotomy because, yes, Vincent Gallo is able to live out in the world. I wouldn't say I think he presents as less um, feral, but I don't necessarily know that he is. And I think that that's a very interesting kind of contrast. Yes, especially, you know, considering this is one of the films in the genre that's directed by a woman. 
So there's like a very strong um, lens on women's experiences. Um, And like you said, it's not that Vincent Gallo is like less feral. It's this idea that um, of like the kind of white male respectability that is able to cover it up. uh, Whereas, you know, Beatrice Dahl is oppressed for it. Um, And at the same time, there's there's some interesting stuff going on with race that I haven't fully formulated um, because of Beatrice Dahl's husband, who's um, a black man. And there's, yeah, there's this kind of this interplay between respectability and uh, ferality going on with these characters and with the Vincent Gallo and the June character as well, right? Like he's so sexually voracious. And like you said, she's almost childlike and virginal and she's got these like bite marks on her from him, like something sinister has been going on in the the marriage bed yeah and I think that talking about like Claire Denis in general I find it very interesting this movie I think has been really reappropriated so people now really celebrate it a lot more than they did when it was initially released but if you look at her other movies that are most like closest to genre like Trouble Every Day there's uh, Bastards, Les Salauds and then High Life where she goes much deeper or much more overtly into kind of the transgressive territory. They tend to be the most sensual of her works as well. And the ones that audiences do not receive particularly strongly, uh, or they too strong. They, they have these like really visceral responses against what she's trying to do. And I think that speaks to their complexity and the fact that they're dealing with things without her kind of orchestrating this moral dilemma, kind of bringing it back to what you were saying about um, the theater of cruelty, where a lot of it has to do with these textures, with these environments. And she's doing a lot with Trouble Every Day in terms of this image quality as well. Um, you have these weird, I would say like flashbacks where it's like the, the film is so grainy and you also have like the nighttime and like a lot of like new French extremity as well. Like there's so many like textured nights, like whether it's digital or whether it's shot on film, that they're kind of mining the, the, the darkness for this kind of like haptic experience of creating distortions. It's like, it's like skin and light, you know, like a little bit yeah. of that creating these strange, like it's almost hypnotic and luring you into the strange underworld that's really on the surface yes yeah these films that's like a really important element of these films is like the tactile nature of them uh writer laura mcmahon said talked about this she said denise techniques of tactile filming and trouble every day work to touch and contaminate the viewer spooning the hygiene of a distanced viewing spooning or I don't know if I actually put that was right in my notes but I don't know what that means but spooning the hygiene of a distance viewing an emphasis on the surface of images seems to replace the importance of narrative and dialogue the contagious bodies of Corey and Shane are cut adrift from any expository structure and left to circulate as volatile tactile intensities through the film here Denis departs from the conventions of the horror genre whereby the viewer agrees to be 
terrified of the film in return for a clear unfolding of the plot. So true. By removing the sterility of a structured narrative, Denis leaves the viewer dangling, exposed to these contagious intensities in a realm of dread without guidance. And how do you feel like that relates to this idea that you're talking about in your work about religious devotion? I think it's a it's a very interesting question. And like it's the thing that immediately comes to mind is like a lot of religious painting and things like that. Like I, I'm obsessed with it and I always have been. And there's actually this like really interesting thread within the appreciation in art history of a lot of art, particularly for the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, like the height of the religious art movement, because there really wasn't art aside from religious art of those periods. And there's almost this dual appreciation where a lot of these paintings that we look at, like uh, the the example that com- comes to mind in, at first is Raphael, who did images or paintings of like the Virgin Mary, these very pastoral and serene scenes of her with like baby Jesus. So like kind of the opposite of a lot of the violence we're talking about now. But if you look at a lot of the writing over history about these paintings, uh, similar to something like The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, a lot of writers actually comment heavily on these distortions, these this image, this this idea of like this the color, the the amberness of it, this grayness, this dis- distilledness, which end up actually being untrue. They were just really dirty. <laughs> so, so after like. So they clean, eventually they cleaned like Raphael, for example, and they're like, oh, like he's like painting in Technicolor. And a lot of critics actually end up rejecting him after that because they thought that the beauty of his work came through this ambiguity. Like thinking of even um, the Mona Lisa, which is not a religious painting, but the background, which kind of is faded and like ambiguous and uncertain, it le- le- lends to a certain depth, but it also kind of draws you in and we're so attracted to like lack of clarity mm-hmm. um, because it's actually how we experience the world. So yes. you have a lot of writers who, when they're talking about these kinds of paintings and this kind of like religious devotion, like again, like if Da Vinci, a lot of his paintings are religious. You have that same kind of like distortion of backgrounds and environments. It simulates the way that we actually see. And so it kind of roots devotion within the real world rather than this more abstracted or fantastical way of seeing things because particularly pre-renaissance like a lot of these paintings are not necessarily non-representational because it's representational painting but pre like perspective and these things pre-naturalism yeah exactly you're kind of dealing with a lot more symbolic reading and once you kind of enter the realm of naturalism, things become kind of strange because a lot of religious imagery is not rooted in reality. Right. It is fantastic. So you have to like emphasize the more human elements of it to connect with a viewer or to connect with an audience, uh, depending if you're what medium you're working in. Yeah, I'm thinking of a painter like Caravaggio who is so compelling because there's like the gritty, tactile, real human element to these stories. Like when you see a doubting Thomas um, in a Caravaggio doubting Thomas, like you see the finger going into the wound like very graphically, which 
is so new French extremity. Uh, and yeah, the reason we use the word naturalism in art history is because we're talking about um, subjects that don't actually exist in the, you know, if, you know, depending on how religious you are, if these, <laughs> these things, you know, actually happen, we're talking about like a fantastic story. So the compositional elements are naturalistic in that they are different than medieval painting because they're not as flat. There's like three-dimensional perspective um, and naturalistic lighting, but it's still not quote-unquote realistic. And if you're talking about realism in art history, that's another, that's a French movement um, in the, the time of painters like Courbet who are painting real life subjects. So, you know, just a little, little art history nerd fact there for the listeners. But yeah, I feel like this, uh, this idea of the relationship to religious painting, um, is very definitely present and also the nonlinear nature of this film and, uh, and in most of these films, actually, that we're talking about are pretty nonlinear, you know, even if they have like a, like inside has like a basic narrative structure of taking place in one evening. The editing itself, though, is more disorienting. Um, yes, that's how we experience the world. And it's also how we experience religious ecstasy, like one we can be doubting so heavily for one one moment and then so in it and of it the next and that's much more how spirituality functions for people than being on a linear timeline of like oh i wasn't a believer and then i was uh which is like a much more uh evangelical sort of line of thinking. And I'm also thinking about a movie, something like Michael Haneke's Funny Games, which is also like very extreme and exposes the, the inherent suffering of human beings, but is almost more like this kind of German Protestant take on it. Whereas these films are so rooted in the bodily experience of Catholicism and transubstantiation being a huge part of that, of eating the body and drinking the blood. Um, and to that end, let's talk about <laughs> some more cannibalism it, with the movie In My Skin from 2002, directed by and starring Marina Devon, which was her debut feature film. Um, I adore this movie. Uh, I think it's such like an undersung new French extremity film. It's kind of hard to find as well as Trouble Every Day is also pretty hard to find. Um, and Devon, so in 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 my skin, uh, you know, it follows Esther, who's a young woman who seems to have it all, and she has a good job. She's up for a promotion. She's got a loving boyfriend, and she's attained all of these things that a normal young woman is supposed to attain at the dawn of the millennium. I would say that it's very different. 2002 is a very different framework than 2023, where, you know, nobody sort of expected to have these things anymore. Um, but it's, yes, it's a very like dawn of the new millennium narrative. And one night at a house party, Esther steps outside and cuts her leg on some industrial supplies. 
uh, and she does not immediately notice immediately notice the cut or feel pain, but eventually she begins to obsessively self mutilate not only her injured leg but the rest of her body. That where the film becomes increasingly abstract and nonlinear and disjointed, as Esther's need to inflict wounds on her own skin grows, uh, she starts eating herself slowly. So Devon actually. Uh, this was inspired by a moment in her childhood when a car ran over her leg and she began to see her leg as just like another object, like this deformed scrap. And her friends used to amuse themselves by sticking her scars with needles uh, because the skin was numb. So this that's how the, the plot for In My Skin was born. Uh, in terms of, I mean, I think like, Immediately right off the bat, the first thing I'm thinking of is transubstantiation. And I wanted to hear some more of your thoughts about that and how that relates to this film. Yeah, actually. So I almost included this in my class, but I had made like a decision, like uh, last, what do you call it? Like final hour where I wanted to make sure that as many of the films as possible were easier to find. Right. And having included Trouble Every Day already, which is not impossible, but hard and in my skin can be harder unless you have you have your ways um i do think that this movie is operating on so many different levels because yeah it's talking a lot about like consuming the body as a religious experience which is i think tied to a lot of cultures in general but is definitely has this loaded catholicism to it because when you're consuming the body it's as if you're inhabiting it and there's this duality that ends up happening where it is a devotional experience in the sense of like you're consuming it out of love and you're appreciating the sacrifice. But I, I think as I talked about in the course too, you're also turning it to shit, like in a very literal way as well. So there's always this kind of, it's not a paradox, but it's like this, and but it's this violence that you're inflicting that is on so many different layers of it, it, it starting this devotion and ending with disappointments and there's just no satisfaction so like even as she starts picking at her skin and she starts picking at her wounds, it becomes like more compulsive and it is satisfying, but it's never satisfying enough. And I also think that there is an element in this film in the religious thing of treating the body as kind of a devotional object, which is very rooted in a lot of religion. Like you're not supposed to damage the body on purpose because you're made in God's image. And that's why things like self-harm or, which I think is very paradoxical because all the saints are constantly engaging in self-harm. Constantly. And they, <laughs> and yet, I, I, this is the, like, I was, I was like really going into so much research trying to find an answer why a martyr is not committing suicide. Like, why is it not considered? Isn't that the eternal question, right? Like, how is that how yeah exactly is it because it's you know for god i i I guess that would be like the main difference it's not like a selfish act quote unquote i don't believe suicide is selfish that's not like my opinion that's a you know a religious notion notion yeah and so it's like all of these kind of questions kind of coming into one and in particular i think that she's dealing with this very secular society where there is this gap of the spiritual and she's able to kind of find this ritual of self-consuming 
as a way of connecting with some kind of like abstractive spirituality. And it's, it's a very, there's so many challenging and contradictory ideas that are kind of going on here. And there's really no other movie like it. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't really think of another film that treats it with so much, it's so graphic, it's so disgusting, but there is really, you really sense this, the sense of like, not love, because love is like the wrong word, but devotion devotion yeah no there's like an adoration to what she's doing and again very ritualized it's not just random and there is shame there's all of these things but it's more than just like an obsessive compulsion it's like she's she's gaining something spiritual from this experience ecstatic like kind of the word that you were saying using before as well that she she's really finding something that she's not getting from all of those other things. She's not getting from her her perfect life, her, her uh, like the the man in her life. She's not getting from her job. She's not getting from her home. All of these things that secular life promises you are going to satisfy you. Do not. They do not satisfy her. Yeah, and it's almost like the capitalism of this film is sort of positioned as like the new god of of our society, but it's the body horror and the worship of the most disgusting aspects of you that are closer to this actual experience of divinity. And I was wondering also if you would talk a little bit about the book you mentioned in your course about excrement. Yeah, give me a second to find the title. Yeah, uh, I think it's like it's called like Experiment in the Middle Ages. Um, it is. I'm so obsessed with it because it's well, one the title. It's, yeah, it's I mean, come on. <laughs> but it kind of talks about this kind of duality of a lot of artwork, but a lot of like historical stuff from that era is focused on this kind of idea that there is this paradox in terms of religious devotion again kind of what i talked about before if you consume the host which is the body of christ you are going to shit it out or you're going to vomit it out and therefore you're desecrating christ as well so how do you actually come to terms with that idea i i don't think you can like you actually have to it's like one of these things you actually have to accept both things at the same time that you are committing an act of devotion and desecration. And I guess it is tied in some way to original sin, even though that's more sexually loaded. But considering that a lot of like the writers that were writing about shit and blood in this book like, are also writing about sex. Um, it's all related. <laughs> yeah, it's what was the, the, the Decalogue, Decalogue, the, um, the Pasolini adapted it. Mm. Um, he writes a lot about shit. Basically. Oh yeah, Pasolini was all about shit. And I mean, it's part of life. Okay, yeah. So the book is called. You were right. It's called Excrement in the Late Middle Ages um, by Susan S. Morrison. And um, yeah, this idea of like sacred filth. Um, it you know like Pasolini talks about too. Um, yeah, it, and and the idea. I mean. Sex is also related to this because it gives and brings life, but it also is like, you know, disgusting and in its way. <laughs> and it doesn't uh, if, if you're not uh, if you're just fucking for the sake of it and not to procreate, there's like this the dead life 
in in that's that's inherent in the sex act, like with the sperm going nowhere or um, not going into the womb, but you know going on the body or in another hole. <laughs> so it's you know very much related, and you know the, the consuming. Um, the body of Christ and the idea that you're going to shit it out, right? Like you said, is like inherently um, paradoxical. Uh, and I believe, you know, like no one quote me on this, but I believe that was actually like a huge debate in the Middle Ages about um, the idea of transubstantiation. Uh, and there's this rejection in this film of like classic notions of what society has deemed appropriate and acceptable like the the blood of the characters is um celebrated and and um it is both horrific and beautiful and in, in this film in my skin you know uh marina devon said i aimed for a kind of sensuality while there is something very desperate in Esther's condition, there is also something very childish and childlike, especially in how she uses her mouth. And yeah, her I, I'm thinking of the scenes where she rents a hotel room by herself so she can like eat herself in private. I mean, that's an act that you would associate with like a sexual affair, uh, you know, clandestinely renting a room so you can perform these acts but she's doing it to eat away at her own body so it's inherently related to sex yeah 100 percent. and i think if you look at some of her other films as well like particularly later on like she does these documentaries that are very inward looking as well where there are a lot of them are about her body too and i do think that there is something childlike in that fascination with the body that we're told not to do which is a very is often associated with religion but I do think it's also very social and cultural where you should feel shame to know what your body looks like or what your body looks like especially for um, young people particularly young women or people who are like it's like it's important to be beautiful it's important to be objectified it's, it's very again you're supposed to be smart, you're supposed to be all good, you're supposed to do all these things, but if you're also not beautiful, then it's bad. And I think that this character is also kind of grappling with that, this objectification, the self-objectification and taking this weird kind of twisted ownership of that as well, where she's kind of taking control of her image, either in destroying it, it, it is again par a paradox, she's destroying her image in a way and you can see that it's it's an act of violence but it's also almost as if her body becomes an, a work of art that she's creating that she's crafting that is transgressive because it's it's not what you're supposed to do and it's not for anyone but herself it's not for society it's not for a man it's not for a job it's it's really she's doing this to herself but I would also argue like for herself it's almost like a gift which again it's it, the movie I find the movie actually really hard to watch um up there with martyrs it's like to me incredibly gruesome but it's gruesome because it feels truthful in a way and it, it kind of goes back to even what you were talking about in terms of art and naturalism where it just feels very real and 
it, it doesn't just feel real in the sense that it looks realistic. It feels real in that it's rooted in this kind of truth about the human condition that's incredibly uncomfortable to face. Absolutely. I mean, I think the most disturbing scene for me is not even like when she goes to the hotel to slowly eat herself. It's when she's at that dinner uh, with these colleagues and it's like the most boring bourgeoisie like xenophobic conversation that they're having, which causes her to have this kind of like psychotic episode where she's seeing her arm as detached from the rest of her body. And she starts like poking at it with a knife, almost to sort of like confirm that it is part of her. And this idea that like capitalism alienates you from your body and it is like the pain and the devotion that brings you back into your body, um, I find really transgressive. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just, it is hard to watch. Um, I <laughs> was rewatching it for this episode directly after my Martyrs rewatch. And watching it after that was like a fucking walk in the park after that movie. <laughs> but yeah, the, it is extremely um, gruesome. Uh, you know, something like Inside, which we can talk about next from 2007, um, is uh, very gruesome in a similar way. I mean, as all of these are, right? But there's this um, focus on, I think in all, actually all of the films we're talking about, specifically women and devotion. And I think we can talk about that more when we talk about martyrs because there are so many female martyrs. But in Inside, we get uh, this, uh, you know, story of this woman who her partner dies in a car accident and she's pregnant and um, she now must carry the baby without him. And she's very um, not thrilled about this, which is very transgressive to show a woman not excited about her own pregnancy. And uh, she, on Christmas Day, uh, it, well, she's tortured on Christmas Eve and she gives birth, quote unquote, on Christmas Day. Um, she's this woman just called La Femme breaks into her home and tortures her and eventually reveals herself to be the other person in the car accident. Um, and it, it killed her, the, the car accident killed her baby that she was supposed to have. So now she's come back to demand a baby from Sarah, the main character. And it culminates in extremely gruesome, monstrous birth where La Femme uh, cuts Sarah's baby out of her womb with scissors. So this movie is full of like Virgin Mary references. I actually wrote an essay for the new uh, reissue for this through Second Sight Films. Uh, I don't know when it's coming out, but um, I wrote a lot about the Virgin Mary iconography and how it's linked to this idea of the archaic mother, the monstrous mother, as posited by Barbara Creed and her, of course, like seminal work. And... Yeah, I mean, there's so much with devotion going on here. Like, 
I talk in my essay about how female female devotees worshipped the Christ the Christ side wound, and would physically kiss images of it as if it were like a kind of breast, and the blood would be you know pouring forth was transubstantiated into mother's milk to nourish humankind. So there's this abjection here where the worshipers are both horrified and drawn to the wound that portends the death, but then also transmogrifies it into a site of life and nourishment. So there, that, that idea is really present in this film where the, you know, the, that relationship between life and like abject death and violence where the walls of the house literally become like a womb covered in blood um what do you what do you have any thoughts justine about inside i think this is one of my favorite of the genre i'm actually i'm not a huge fan of this one but (laughs) but i think it's like i this is the this one i haven't had a chance to rewatch like a confession um and I think that my distaste for it also comes less from the film itself and more with watching their other films. Mm, tell me um, about that. Because I just, I think that this is their best movie. I like, I don't like their other movies. I don't um, think I've even seen their other movies, did, to be honest with you. They did the Leatherface remake. Okay, I did not see that. But I'm thinking of films like Aux yeux des vivants, Among the Living, which... Uh, I just, it's just think it's like it's so vacant but this movie isn't vacant like the, like that's not what infuriated me I don't I like kind of going back to like that initial experience watching the movie I think that it's a very challenging movie because compared to even I would say martyrs in this one are the ones that are the closest to like actually the actual horror genre where there is a lot more of narrative conventions that we would associate with a traditional horror film it's like a home invasion movie. It's also a possession movie, uh, an anti-exorcist movie, because there's kind of all these things that you're talking about, about this this child, which you can even interpret like broadly as almost a virgin birth because the, the father does not exist. Right. Because it's a very secular world. And therefore, if you're dead, you do not, you're dead, right? So she's kind of undertaking this terrible experience, which gets really bad, of course, with this home invasion. And I think I was, I think I was troubled by it. And I, I, I like troubled by it, maybe a bit too, per, not personally, but kind of trying to reconcile these genre trappings with these very art house conventions. I think was like maybe shocking to me because I think this is one of the first films of the movement that I had seen initially. And it's also deceptively simple. And I think it forces you really to live in that experience in such a brutal way. And it's so, to me, this one is like incredibly nihilistic. I find it much harder to connect any sense of hope or love to any of anything that's going on. And I mean, I, I read also some of your notes and I'm like, wow, like I, I'm, I'm happy to have to be able to talk to you about it because I actually think that your point of view is really illuminating and I, I feel like I had this emotional reaction to it that kind of cut me off from being able to I could I could it. see that I mean there is kind of like a there could you could interpret this as like a misogynist film like very easily which I could totally see why there would be that reaction to it I mean just this idea of like 
just these monstrous, monstrous motherhood, this idea of like, you know, I don't know. There is, there's definitely stuff there. I, I see why you were off put by it. I mean, I think even the first time I saw it, I was like, what the hell is this crap? Um, and then I watched it a bunch more times and I was like, okay, I think I actually love this. But I think like why I love it is just this like twisted use of the holy iconography um, that like gets perverted, right? And like the most obvious one being, right, like that Sarah is tortured on Christmas Eve and then quote unquote gives birth on Christmas Day. Like it's very obviously a Jesus story. But I think um, what draws me to it is the drama between the two women, which, you know, again, is present in Martyrs. And um, just the, the, the focus on like refuse as like bodily refuse as like religious devotion um which i think really relates to your work so i wanted to um to chat about it i also think that um because again not having rewatched it recently isn't there a lot of scenes there's a lot of radio they're, they're always listening to the radio and these kind of reports of yes. violence and i think that kind of connects to with what I was talking about in terms of the French relationship with Catholicism mm. because it's very clear again correct me if I'm wrong but I believe that there's always these interpretations that within the news stories that are about these violent acts or these perpetrators well, it's about quite, the um the riots that were going on yeah, at the time yeah they're, they're, there's like there's racist not racist undertones I would say like racist it's just racist text from the point of view of the radio announcer and it, again it kind of reinforces this idea of the way I'm not saying the movie's racist I'm talking about I think it's actually commenting on that right because again there is this perception within that French society that despite the fact that they're non-religious that the other religions and the the, the perpetrators of them which they don't really care if you're like you could be an Arab Christian for them you might just be an Arab and therefore you are an other is always kind of this outsider attacker. And I think that I've, I, I don't know if I would commit to this because I, I don't actually think it's true. Again, I do think that the film is more commenting on it, but I, I do believe that some people kind of read the text as, uh, again, it's a very classic home invasion trope that the outsiders are not just literal outsiders breaking into the home, but it's a symbolic of invaders Mm. And again, I would say that the brutality of this movie, I don't think that they're actually kind of suggesting what the, I, I, like, again, I'm not saying that the movie's making it, I think it's making a commentary on that, that there is this idea within French bourgeoisie that these other people are invaders, but it's kind of like the call is coming from inside the house. Right. The, the, viola the violator, the violence is not coming from the rioters. It's coming from somebody who's she's the 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 uh, other woman she's blonde and she's she's like uh she's quite pure she looks like very pure in the sense of like french or germanic type of thing you know like yeah like sarah sarah is sort of like the perfect french woman and she wears white and then la femme is like a more of like a dark haired um dressed in black you know it's very much like quote-unquote good versus evil and like of course we could talk about how white symbolizing purity and black symbolizing evil is like inherently problematic like throughout time and history um 
And yeah, I mean, whether or not the movie succeeds in its commentary on racism, like I don't know. Um, but there, there are various moments where, um, like, for example, I mean, the police are useless in this film, which I love because like, true yes they're useless so they when they come by to like you know sarah calls the police they have a um a young arab man in the car with them that they've like presumably arrested from the surrounding riots and um yeah there's just a very there's like some commentary there on her own complicity and also um the the inept ineptitude of the police and their like assumption that Sarah is like crazy and lying and also that of oh it's probably just like a guy like this um you know we arrested him like this is probably the guy who was bothering you <laughs> when it's actually uh another woman <laughs> and uh home invasion right that's a huge part of the film martyrs which we can move on to because I feel like I, I was saying that Martyrs is like almost the apotheosis of all of these ideas that we're talking about. And Pascal Logier, I don't like his other films either. Um, I don't know if you've seen Incident in a Ghost Land, but it's like irredeemably transphobic. So there's, you know, uh, uh, but, but Martyrs is, and it's like almost comical in how bad it is, but Martyrs is like, one of those movies, maybe lightning in a bottle for him, that is just considered like a masterpiece of the new French extremity movement, even though he does not consider it new French extremity. But it's like, okay, come on, Pascal. Um, <laughs> but it's been derided as torture porn. Um, can you like sum up the, the like the plot of Martyrs just seen? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's, like, divided almost into two distinct parts, although, like, there's other flashbacks involved. It's basically about these two women who, as young, as children, I would say, like, preteens, escape from this terrible situation, and as adults, they return to this home that one of them remembers. And it starts off as kind of a revenge fantasy where this woman who maybe... Um, she may be having like a psychotic break, decides to enact a violent revenge on people who the audience might, there is ambiguity if these people are actually guilty or not. Yes, they they're actually across, the torturers. Yeah. They come across as a very like normal family and they live in a normal upper middle class to upper class house. And soon it becomes clear that they are involved in this nefarious kind of underground society of these hyper wealthy, hyper powerful people who do kidnap young people and particularly young women in order to torture them to the point of almost being dead in order to prove whether or not there is an afterlife. Right. So they can re re reach some kind of religious ecstasy. Um, you know, Lucy and Anna. So Lucy is... Um, you know, kind of opens with her escaping from this abject torture situation. And she uh, develops this really close, like sapphic friendship with Anna. And Anna, like, 
believes her but also doesn't <laughs> um you know she's conflicted because lucy is kind of psychotic like you were saying and is having visions of a deformed woman um menacing and hurting her um but it's actually her hurting herself but what you learn after the home invasion where she kills these people that she's convinced were her torturers is that she, when she was running away as a child, she saw another woman being tortured and she couldn't save her. And the guilt just like ate away at her and became this like horrible vision that follows her around. And once she sees after she kills the family, where she's, I, there's this moment, really sad moment where she's like, I even killed their kids. And this vision has not gone away. And that is when she commits suicide, believing that, you know, she's never going to escape this and, you know, kind of leaves her friend Anna to clean up the mess. Um, And then Anna finds another tortured woman um, in the basement of this house uh, who she also tries to save. So she's like trying to save these women throughout the whole film and you know, the woman ends up, you know, she she can't save her. And like like Justine was saying, she finds out that there is actually this secret society that is kidnapping young women, specifically young women, because those are the ones that they think easily reach this um, like state of transcendence of religious ecstasy, which I think is really interesting for um, this idea of like female martyrs um why do you think people are so compelled by the notion of the female martyr i mean this is something that's been around since like early christianity and there's so many female martyrs in catholicism i think there's a lot of reasons i would i would say that some of it has to do with the fact that a lot of like particularly early martyrs or early texts about like religious ecstasy which often do have a lot to do with uh bodies like in terms of like bodily sacrifice uh fasting you can you can achieve a state of religious ecstasy like in 2023 without believing in god if you deprive yourself and torture yourself enough you know like it's like that's not i don't think that's a controversial thing to say um and for example a lot of these early saints a lot of them were nuns and they were cloistered away and people were speculating. They were like, very literally, they're like, they would, they, they didn't have the internet. They were thinking like, what are the nuns doing? They're probably, honestly, they, a lot of them are like, they're probably fucking. Like, yeah. they're probably fucking each Which other. Which a lot of them were. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them were. Yeah. Like, not, it's like historic fact. And so I think that there's like this aura of mystery. I think there's this aura of mystery in general over um, vulvas and vaginas because they're mysterious, because they're inside of you mm-hmm. and they're like, Hidden away. What, yeah. what secrets do they have? And so I think there's like these kind of layers of like uncertainty. And I also believe like the way that we covet in general, uh, whether within a religious environment or not, like the virginity of a young woman, all of these kind of elements are coming together to create this perfect, pure creature because a woman, rather than a child, uh, is um, already like it's it's two adults and there's something so malleable and so easy. You can desecrate it like kind of like a lamb. And I mm-hmm. think that there's like this appeal too where people want to destroy 
young women you see it on the internet too like with the way people talk about teenage girls is weird and not just in terms of like over sexualizing but like no but destruction yeah I mean I think for me that illustrates something I talk about on the show a lot which is the relationship between the sex drive and the death drive and I think that you know, women are so thoroughly objectified and sexualized that there's this, you know, it's like the the sexualization of women is inherently linked to destruction because the sex drive and the death drive are inherently linked. And, uh, you know, like you were saying, like people want to desecrate that which is beautiful, like that is um, very erotic to people. So I think this idea of like this beautiful, virginal, female saint, like suffering something so horrible, like Saint Agatha getting her breasts ripped off and um, having that her imagery be her with her breasts on a plate. And she's also the patron saint of uh, rape survivors. and this the idea of like the symbolic breast ripping as related to rape and there's no rape in martyrs in fact like they go out of their way to say that lucy has no evidence of sexual violence like it is inherently that because of this relationship to um like torture and sexual violence and then of course like the like lesbian love story at the core here kind of relates back to what you were saying about nuns um these women like cloistered away and finding like sexual comfort and eroticism with it with each other and there's also like a very codependent core here because anna is if she had just left a little bit earlier (laughs) uh would not have experienced what she does in the movie but she's because uh the her love of lucy like stays with her um you know is she she causes the downfall of the secret society through her suffering and transcendence which is caused by her deep love for her friend who she cannot leave physically or spiritually so there's a very like pascal logier himself said that there was like a very hopeful core in this film um he you know he wanted to transform uh pain and suffering into like a beautiful spiritual experience that the audience has together he really didn't want to put the audience through pain without a reason so um he says since we don't believe in anything since the world is increasingly divided between winners and losers what is left to the losers but to do something with their pain deep down it's what the film is about um and alex west says in martyrs there's beauty and degradation hope and loss and triumph and darkness so there's how do you think that idea that like hope and loss and triumph and darkness relates to this idea of religious devotion? I mean, I think it's, it's like fundamental, right? Like stories, like the story of Job and having like almost having to endure. And it's easy just to see from the outside and like read some, some Bible stories um, and think like, why, right? Why do we have to do this? But reality is, is like a lot of our lives, good or bad there's a lot of suffering involved 
And the only way that the suffering is worthwhile is if, yes, you do something with that pain or you're able to transcend it. And to me, like, Martyrs is, like, very difficult to watch. I, I feel like I've said that about every single one. But Me too. Um, I mean, it's really hard for me. And I'm, like, a gore hound. But there's, like, that scene, like, when um, Anna sees, like, the, the, the ghost, I guess, of, of Lucy. And then she's able to endure the pain afterwards. And like it's like oh, that, that scene makes me cry. Like it's like me it's too. It's so. It's actually so beautiful, and it's so like. It, it it kind of is like all these movies are about the body, but this film. Kind of reaches without saying like God is real or God isn't real. They're like there is something higher than, the pure physical experience, and you can read it in many ways. Like we are often at the mercy of other people but we're also at the mercy of like the limits of your own body um there's chronic illnesses there's chronic pain there's all of these things and it's like how are you supposed to endure that and i think that that the movie in a general sense kind of offers a reason and even though in a lot of ways like he could pascal's screenplay could have easily gone in such a different direction because yes it's like Anna, if she had just left, she could have avoided all of the suffering. But in a sense, it's like it's like it's better to have loved and lost type of thing in the end, which sounds like such a like boring cliche. But at the same time, it's like it's unfortunately true. It's like she it was worth it for her to stay because it's worth it for her to love. It's not even to experience love. And I think that that's also what's so profound about this movie. It's not about feeling love. It's about loving, which, again, I think is also like a refusal of this kind of religious point of view as well, because a lot of religious texts or a lot, a lot of religious belief is like, oh, well, God loves you or Jesus loves you. It's like, no, but it's like, it's more important for you to love others. Mm. Um, That's such a good point. I, I find it's like just, it's because I do, like, I haven't seen his other films, but I also feel it's like, maybe this is like the, this is what he had to say, and he just stuck with it. But <laughs> this is what he had to say, and he really fucking said it with this movie. And uh, yeah, I mean, he said, "I wanted to make the genre offensive and disturbing again. Once again, the genre horror first existed for that kind of purpose, trying to offend the dominant thoughts, the dominant people, and trying to express something else, trying to express something more real, the kind of reality that society doesn't want to reveal." And yeah, this is the 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 kind of the idea that like to love is to suffer like we know that but uh it's you know the it it's very transgressive even still to this idea that like it's worth dying for that uh it's worth dying to um to cause the downfall of this horrible secret society that has become so bourgeoisie so wealthy that they amuse themselves by thinking about and trying to discover what is in the afterlife which you know also begs the question like why are you guys so obsessed with the afterlife you have such a good current life it's just you know you know uh like colonizing and um it's a really, really an indictment of bourgeoisie French religious sensibility and, um, you know, like that, that kind of what you were talking about at the top of the show of that, 
you know, um, the other and the alienation that happens in French, French Catholicism. Yeah. And I think what is so great about this movie as well is that he positions um, the power of religion in terms of like a social or cultural or political point of view as something powerful, because we see oftentimes within a lot of like discourses um, particularly in North America, although in France this is present as well, where a lot of people position their religiosity, particularly Christians, as the persecuted. When we know that they are not the persecuted, they're often they're very they're in proximity with power. Right. And this movie does that. It, it definitely aligns this kind of organized type of religion, not necessarily religious belief or religious devotion as an individual or communal act but as a organized one, as, as powerful. And a lot of the imagery here also reminds me of something like The Passion of Joan of Arc by the seventh film, the Carl Theodore Dreyer, which has a lot of very similar imagery in terms of the close-ups, in terms of also this organized religion sacrificing somebody to make a statement, even though they know it's wrong, because I do believe that even these terrible people, they know what they're doing is wrong they're quite clear that they're aware that this is not like a good thing to do, which is again, a paradox, right? Yeah. They kind, of, they kind of say it. <laughs> and it's like, if there is an afterlife and you do believe it's connected to a religious aspect of things to purpose, like it's almost like they're purposefully sabotaging, perhaps knowing they're already doomed because they're greedy, terrible people to begin with. They're like, if there is a Christian God, it's like, you've, kind of just ruined your chances of getting into heaven by going through this whole elaborate experiment. And the only reason you would do that is one, you actually don't think there is an afterlife and you're kind of reveling in the torture of human beings. Or two, you think you're already doomed to go to hell and you're reveling in the torture and suffering of other human beings. Yeah. And I think like that's such a good point. And I think something else that strikes me about this movie is like martyrdom has to be willing for it to be martyrdom, I mean, that's a huge component of the Christ story. Um, he's tempted at every turn to turn away from his purpose and he goes towards it knowing he will die and and suffer a lot before he dies. And that is like the tenant of Christian martyrdom. That is like the core of it. And yeah, Anna has to accept what has happened to her and go towards um, love uh, as Christ does to reach that kind of transcendence. And then, of course, the like woman who runs this organization or is very high up in it. We don't really know her only. She's just called Mademoiselle um, when Anna gets flayed alive and reaches religious ecstasy. She whispers something into Mademoiselle's ear, which causes Mademoiselle to uh, shoot herself at the end of the movie. And of course, there's no way to, for us to know what she said. But yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> we don't know if she's like killing herself because what, uh, what Anna, you know, saw on the other side was so inviting 
or like maybe she saw nothing and Mademoiselle is like, wow, this has all been for nothing. Uh, or, you know, we don't, we really don't know. What do you think of the ending? I think, I, I mean, I like the ambiguity and so I like to consider all the different options. I actually think there is even the possibility, which is like, feels like, again, almost crazy that she's condemning her like in a way that and again it seems paradoxical because it's like if you know there's a hell and you're going to it would you kill yourself i actually think maybe you would i i don't think that that's a strange reaction and there is also the possibility that anna's not telling her the truth about anything right so we don't we don't know there's this like it's the lost in translation-esque thing I would, I would believe that she's telling her there is nothing. That's that's kind of like where I land on that. And Anna, having lived on this earth and having not a very privileged or easy life, at least did find love and did find peace and did find all of these things. So even though she's close to death, because there's no way she's going to survive either, um, she's made her life is worth worthwhile. Whereas right. people's lives is, is nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's like a really <laughs> strange to say, but like a very touching film, <laughs> very like, you know, beautiful meditation on the power of this woman's love um, for, for this other woman and um, this like queer love too, that is positioned as like divine. And um, I found that really, uh, really moving on this last watch. Um, I think that we can end there, uh, Justine, um, unless you have anything else you want to say about martyrs. No, I'm just I'm just happy that it exists. <laughs> Me too. I mean, God, what a picture. I guess this is a, um, you know, if you I haven't seen any of the films we talked about here. Um, Martyrs, if, you, if you're going to watch one film from the New French Extremity Movement, I would say this is the one. Uh, and if, I'm also biased towards um, In My Skin and uh, Base Moi, which we did not talk about, but which, um, which I, I love that movie. Um, Justine, where can the people find you and your writing on social media or wherever you want them to find you? The easiest way to find any of my work is uh, on Twitter or Instagram at Red Room Rantings. I share most of my articles. Uh, you can always go to cultmontreal.com as well, where I publish most of my regular reviews. But the ones I like the best, I share online. So, yeah. Amazing. And you all know where to find me. Girls Guts Giallo on Instagram. Girls Guts Giallo X on Twitter. And of course, my Patreon. Patreon.com slash Girls Guts Giallo. Sign up. It's how I make um, almost all of my money besides freelance writing. So if you want to support the show, greatly appreciate it. Got lots of bonus episodes and screenings and writing and a Discord community. So find me there. And thank you again for joining me, Justine. Thank you for having me. It was super fun. Look into my eyes. You see trouble every day. It's on the inside. So don't try and understand. I get on the inside of you. 
and I know who I am. Yeah, this trouble. 